0: Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for January Fourteenth, 2022. I'm Joy LaClaire. Our guest today on Forthright Radio is noted expert on national security, terrorism, and civil liberties, Karen Greenberg. She founded and is director of the Center on National Security at Fordham University. Her 2016 book, Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State, explores the war on terror's impact on justice and law in America. Her latest book, Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump, is published by Princeton University Press. We spoke with Karen Greenberg on January 7, 2022. One year and a day after a momentarily united, completely bipartisan Congress fled in fear of their lives from a mob who had violently invaded the Capitol, preventing the fulfillment of their obligation under the Electoral Count Act of 1887— to meet to count the electoral votes of the 2020 presidential election on January 6th. They were prevented from doing so until January 7th, one year to the day that Karen Greenberg and I spoke. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Karen Greenberg. Thank you for joining us today.
1: I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Karen, before we discuss your most recent book, Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump, a quick look back at what now seems to me to be a prescient statement from you in your 2016 book, Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. In the epilogue, you wrote, and I'm quoting... Terror attacks are as sure to happen as devastating earthquakes on the West Coast or a hurricane in the East, as a pandemic of SARS or Ebola or influenza, or as the failure of a vital piece of our deteriorating infrastructure. They are, in other words, a condition of our current experience, end of the quote. Did you imagine that SARS-CoV-2, which is the scientific name for COVID, would come so quickly and plague our world for this long?
1: No, but of course, as a person who is, like so many these days, just consumed with fear, (laughs) I did fear it, and I did think about what the consequences would be. So no, I didn't see it coming, but I worried about it. Kudos
0: to you for naming it. I mean, that was pretty specific. (laughs) So anyway, in your latest book, Subtle Tools, you note that three specific acts of Congress as a response to the 9-11 attacks have changed the power structures and dynamics of the United States, and not for the better. Namely, the authorization to use military force from September 2001, the USA Patriot Act one month later in October 2001, and the Homeland Security Act a year later, October 2002. And you write that, quote, the historic midterm elections of 2002 set these legislative changes in stone and fixed the country on the course it has pursued to this day, away from liberalism and toward self-serving greed and the perpetuation of injustice and inequality, to end that quote. Twenty-plus years later, an entire generation of Americans is coming of age who have experienced no other political reality. You describe, quote, the institutional and cultural changes that 9-11 and the 107th Congress have wrought, The overt policy choices, such as the decision to go to war in Iraq, the weakening of civil liberties in the name of national security, etc., end of that quote. But you say that your book is about, quote, the less visible but equally destructive set of practices, which you call the subtle tools of the war on terror. So what do you mean by the subtle tools
1: and just what are they? Well, thank you for that introduction to the book, because you really encapsulated it extremely well. And what I would say is that what I mean by subtle tools are the things that are unseen, that were the way we went about processing and furthering these laws and policies. So it's not just what they were and getting rid of the policies themselves is not going to address a fundamental change in how we do business in Washington and in the country. So let me just go through some of what I meant. The subtle tools are imprecision in language, but I don't just mean imprecision in language. I mean imprecision in the language of the law and imprecision in the procedural regularities that are put in place imprecision in the bureaucracy, by which I call in the book bureaucratic porousness, the idea of establishing entities, DHS would be a very good example, Department of Homeland Security, entities in which it's not clear what the exact mission is, it's a mixture of missions, it's a mixture of authorities, And maybe they could trade those authorities. It's an erosion of the borders between agencies, for example, between the White House and the Department of Justice, between the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security, and many other examples. A third subtle tool, which won't surprise people, but I wanted to point to because it really needs to be named, is secrecy. We all accept and know that we live in an age of increasing classification increasing inability to to know actually what's been done in our name and what happened with secrecy over the course of Bush and then Obama and then Trump is really a story that needs to be told which goes from classifying more and more documents in exponential ways to not creating the documents themselves which is what happened in a little bit under Obama but in much greater ways under Trump And then the final subtle tool, the fourth, is this willing abandonment of law and policy when it comes to doing what the president wants. And there's a lot that that goes on within the the use of those subtle tools. But imprecision is really what opens the door to so much of this. You mentioned the authorization for the use of military force from September of 2001, which was basically the response to the attacks of 9-11 and justified and underlay the invasion of Afghanistan. It didn't name an enemy. It didn't have a temporal limit. It didn't have a geographical descriptor. It was just an open authorization for the president, not Congress, which is what is authorized to declare war, for the president to decide when, how and where to use force in this larger realm of response to 9-11. And we're living with it to this day, still even after the drawdown of Afghanistan. It's been used in at least 19 countries that we know of. And so that's an example of the way in which the lack of specificity, the imprecision of language has just enabled carte blanche for how to use military force outside of the United States. Let's
0: step back just a moment and... Talk about why you can speak about these things with such authority. You are the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham University. So, does that
1: make you a law professor? Good question. Okay, so let me tell you how all this started. In 2002, I began to put in place a center, which we called at the time the Center on Law and Security at NYU Law School. I had worked at NYU for at least a decade in different parts of the university. And I got a a lot of federal funding to set up this center, which was to look at national security. I did not realize at the time how much national security would bring to bear the constitution, the rule of law, civil liberties, human rights. And so it developed over its first decade as sort of the go-to place to look at the civil liberties issues involved with national security. And during the Bush administration, this was a central focus of policy. And so it became a place where individuals across the policy world, the law world, the academic world, could talk in a safe space. That's what it was created for. And they were off the record discussions between people from Washington, people in the civil liberties community. And then in 2011, I moved it uptown to Lincoln Center to Fordham Law School, and it's continued the same mission. And so over time, we developed innumerable databases. We have a morning publication, I think it's in its 17th year, the CNS Supan Group Morning Brief, which is a roundup of issues where national security, the rule of law, civil liberties, human rights sort of. A conflict or come into conversation with one another. And so that's the space I sort of created for myself. By training, I'm a historian, but I've always been at law schools for the past two decades, and I teach courses in national security, the rule of law, the presidency, sort of bringing together the 9-11, post-9-11 era, and my interest in policy and my historian's sensibilities. If
0: listeners want to check out that newsletter, how would they find it? They
1: would go to nationalsecurity.org, I think, or dot .com. Sorry, <laughs> and they would, and, and they'll click on Morning Brief. It'll just say the CNS Stefan Group Morning Brief. They click on it, and they can subscribe. And it's a, it's a wonderful product, I have to say. We were just on break for a couple of weeks over Christmas and New Year's. And as the person who takes the final edit on it, I really missed it. I created it all these years ago for myself so that I would have the kind of news I wanted. And then a number of people kept saying to me, that's not fair. (laughs) You shouldn't be the only person to have this. And so, as I say, 17 years, we've shared it widely with the policy community, the academic community, the journalist community, and more. It's a wonderful resource. Thank you for asking about it. Sure. So
0: the authorization to use military force, let's look at that briefly, because I want to get, there's so much in your book, Karen, Is there? we can't do anything very thoroughly, but I want to get more to the present day as soon as possible. As you already said, it's very vague, it's nonspecific, it's been used at least 41 times in 19 countries. Is it, in your opinion, unconstitutional? in the sense that the Constitution is pretty clear that only the Congress can declare war. And I suppose they get around that by saying, well, none of these wars have been declared. Anyway, I'm sure you get the gist of where I'm going with this. How do, how do you respond?
1: That's a really good question, <laughs> I have to say, and not one that, that many have been willing to take on. I would say that in the way it's been used, that it, the original passage was not unconstitutional. I would say the persistent excising of Congress out of the conversation does bring into question the constitutional authorities. But the bigger point, and I think you're kind of addressing is, why doesn't Congress care enough? Why doesn't Congress care enough to say, wait, what about us? Can we just weigh in on this decision about how we're going to use strikes in Somalia and other places? And that's the most amazing part is that the balance of powers, the checks and balances, when you think about it, are dependent upon the other branches saying, wait, we deserve to have a voice. We deserve to exercise our role. And they haven't, with, except for in debates in Congress, in, in no way have they weighed in on this in a way that would have curtailed it. But I mean, one of the things I think is really important is there's talk about repealing and replacing the 2001 AUMF. And I think what's interesting about that is that they can't replace it again with some other broad thing. Congress has to rise to the occasion and say, no, we have a say in this. You could say it was illegal, not just unconstitutional, because of the War Powers Act and the president supposing to report to Congress after he conducts any kind of strike that might have been done in the name of self-defense in an emergency kind of situation. But either way, Congress has to care enough. And that's what we haven't seen.
0: Well, you did write in your
1: book that there have been efforts to
0: amend or terminate the authorization to use military force four times before the Trump presidency, and then three times after that, and that it passed the House, but got killed in the Senate. Yep. But before we leave this discussion, very briefly, share with us what you think the legacy has been of this authorization to use military force.
1: I think the legacy has been several things. Perhaps the most important is what it's done to the presidency, which is to give the president powers that Prior to this, he did not have. The general takeaway from 9-11, if you had to enumerate what's changed so drastically, the first one would be the imbalance of powers between the branches and the incredible strengthening of the presidency. And I think the authorization for the use of military force passed days after 9-11 was the point at which once that was done, it gave a signal to just how strong the presidency was and would become in areas far afield from responding to the 9-11 attacks.
0: Okay, let's move on to the USA Patriot Act, uniting and strengthening America by providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism act of 2001. The history that you elucidate. Is I lived through it, but I don't think I was as aware of it as I needed to be. And particularly, the role of Attorney General Ashcroft in subverting the process. He introduced a bill that was 24 pages long. It was very vague. Russ Feingold, with his subcommittee, reacted to the problems with it. The subcommittee came up with a 124-page draft revisions, which they passed out of committee 36 to nothing on October 1st. What does Ashcroft do then?
1: So let me focus in on something that you've talked about here that I think is really important, which is, and I'm glad you mentioned this word because I was going to bring it up, which is the abandonment of process. I, I just want to be clear, the Patriot Act is passed in 2001, in October 2001, so... That it's the Department of Homeland Security Act. But in both of these things, let me just say, in both of these things, the abrogation of process was profound. And this is one of the most important legacies of what happened after 9-11 that we're left with to this day. And it is one of the things, just to skip ahead and we can come back to this, but it is one of the things that Trump understood with a kind of genius intuition about how to abrogate process. So thank you for bringing that up. Now, just to talk about the Patriot Act, the Patriot Act was written very quickly, within weeks. And the reason it was written within weeks was that much of it had already been written and turned down by Congress. They had been trying for a long time to give law enforcement new powers, different powers, powers that, in the terms of the Subtle Tools book, sort of withered away at the boundaries between authorities of the police, for example, and the the authorities of the intelligence community. And 9-11 was the threshold moment at which they could say, you see those powers we wanted? This is what happened with 9-11. Not enough communication, too much stove piping. We need to make sure that authorities can be traded. And, And what that actually meant, although the takeaway sounds, yes, let's do that. What they actually meant was we don't need to pay attention to the same kind of protections of civil liberties and other kinds of robust protections that we've paid attention to in the past, most notably and most infamously surveillance powers. But ultimately what happened was the threshold for investigating individuals who you suspected of a crime of terrorism became much lower than That which you would apply to a criminal. And so the protections for how much the police or law enforcement had to know in order to investigate to you became reduced and lowered. And so it it recreated a sense of the aggression that was allowable by law enforcement. And part of that had to do with something very fundamental to American democratic theory, principle and life, which is the distinction between an individual and a group. One of the things that happened after 9-11 and the Patriot Act is part of that, but not all of it, is that if you were a member of a group, you were automatically a suspect. And so now, you know, we know so much, we're learning more and more even recently about the surveillance of Muslim communities, which we've known about it for a long time, but now the story's getting much more nuanced and, and we're learning about it all over the country, not just, say, for example, in New York City with the police department. And so that was another thing that's often not appreciated about how the Patriot Act weighed in on that. And so what it did was to transform the relationship between fear and response, and basically saying, look, we live in a place where we know what can happen. Therefore, we are going to erode some of the protections, whether it's First Amendment, freedom of speech and assembly, whether it's Fourth Amendment, surveillance, search and seizure, whether it's Fifth Amendment, due process, we're willing to give up a little bit of these because we need to be safe. And ultimately, what we've learned over time is that the erosion of those protections is not what makes us safer. In fact, knowing more about individuals rather than a group, for example, with the Patriot Act, is what gets you closer to being able to make you safe. And so sorry for that long. <laughs> but but that's what happened with the Patriot Act, at least a piece of it. This is, the Patriot Act could take up an entire day's worth of commentary, but just to give you an example of, of, of why it was so important and groundbreaking and in many ways transformative. And in terms of process, the idea that this had to be passed quickly, the idea that everything had to be done immediately because we were so unsafe as a nation because 9-11 had happened. And nearly 3000 people had been killed, violated a sense of process that, as I said earlier, has unfortunately continued in many ways, shapes and forms until the present day. And I and, and just as a tagline to that, one of the things that President Biden seems to be particularly focused on. Which is restoring process and has been since his early days. And we could talk about that later because that has both pros and cons.
0: In terms of how quickly this was done, the USA Patriot Act, the final version that got passed, was submitted on October 24th, 2001. And it passed the very next day. Now, one more thing before we leave the Patriot Act is that you say it is void because it violates the vagueness doctrine. What about that?
1: Okay, so in innumerable cases in the law, there's a, a void for vagueness doctrine, which means that the law so respects precision and clarity that when things are too vague oftentimes they will be declared moot or unacceptable. And so you don't want to be in that place where what you're implementing is going to be declared void and overly vague by the Supreme Court, which has happened in a a number of cases, a number of instances. And yet it wasn't something that bothered them at all. And particularly, you know, I come back to, we knew this early on with the 2000 authorization for the use of military force. The degree to which that was vague and imprecise is something that lawmakers should have known better about. And one of the reasons they didn't know, and this is this kind of is true throughout much of the legislation, is that, believe it or not, there was a more imprecise version that came out of the White House, a vaguer version, a more expansive version that came out of the White House originally. And what we got, no matter how expansive, vague and imprecise it was, was refined from what they'd gotten from the White House.
0: We're speaking with Karen Greenberg about her latest book, Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. The Homeland Security Act, and this is really a big one. Do I have this right that this was the first new agency created since the 1947 creation of the Department of Defense and the National Security Council?
1: Yeah, the the NSC. Uh, Yes, 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 yes. Yes, and this is a a major reorganization of government that goes across many different agencies, which in itself is an invitation to confusion, vagueness, imprecision in terms of mission. And it took from the Department of Justice, it took from the Treasury, from transportation, from across the agriculture, health and human services. It just sort of cherry-picked things, put FEMA wholesale into it, And so from the beginning, it was destined to be confused, as as many saw at the time.
0: Curiously, at least I found it curious, then President Bush originally resisted the move to create this department, but he eventually agreed with a lot of pressure from a lot of different members of his cabinet to do it. You say it stripped 170,000 employees and $37 billion from existing departments. I mean, the chaos that that would alone do would seem to be not in the interest of national security. But before we move on to the rest of the book, what do you want our listeners to take away about that creation?
1: What I want them to take away, and I like that you use the word chaos is basically that by throwing all these things together, DHS became an agency that could be used for whatever the president wanted it to be used for. And it might be emergency relief, it might not. It might be, as we saw, immigration at the border. It might be something other. And this is something that Donald Trump toyed with and played with in ways that, that was built into the mix at the very beginning.
0: In your book, you are an historian, and it is a, a work of history. You do enumerate some of the problems during the Bush administration and then the Obama administration, and then you finally get to the Trump administration. But before we get to Trump, talk about efforts by civil libertarians during the Bush administration and the Kafka-esque aspects of that with uh, particularly around secrecy.
1: Oh, my God. So, yeah, I mean, I think secrecy, I think also just to put into the mix the thing that's perhaps so important to me, which is how all of this played out at Guantanamo. In terms of secrecy, here's the problem. If you're a civil liberties lawyer who wants to bring a case that says, for example, let's let's pick um, the Obama administration and the the putting Anwar al-Awlaki, a U.S. citizen, on a kill list and you're wanting to challenge that decision, how can you know about a decision that's a close hold within the National Security Council? And that's just one example of many, which of course they ended up knowing about, but what if you wanna bring a case saying you're surveilling Americans beyond the protections of the Constitution and beyond the law, you're exceeding statutory limits. How can you do that if the information is classified and secret? The only way you can do that is through whistleblowers. And whistleblowers, of course, became the target of presidents, particularly under the Obama era. And that perhaps was one of the most important things about Snowden, was the fact that one of his first questions to the ACLU after revealing these documents about excessive secrecy, one of the first questions he said was, can you bring a case now? Do you have standing now? Because all of a sudden there was the information. And so that's a persistent problem in the conversation between civil liberties lawyers and advocates and the government is how do we know stuff in order to challenge it? And actually, I think there's been a lot that human rights groups and civil liberties groups and whistleblowers have accomplished in terms of revealing what was done in the name of the country.
0: Share a bit more about that, because I'm always looking for (laughs) positive aspects in in terms of civil liberties and justice and that sort of
1: thing. I really think some of the biggest cases that have been brought, some of the, it's hard to say because I want to give you, you know, an optimistic look at this. But one of the things that happened was that the Patriot Act sunsetted. And with it also sunsetted the sort of broad collection of information that so many civil liberties advocates had pointed to, particularly Section 215, but more. And this had come out in litigation over a variety of issues, not just the issues about surveillance itself, but surveillance in the use of cases, let's say, against alleged terrorists. And so eventually, as this went through the courts, although many courts over time, we were reluctant to take on any of the issues of national security. The courts begin to say, No, this is not right. This is not legal. You cannot collect information this broadly. Remember when I pointed to the difference between individual versus group? You cannot just collect everybody's information. That is not lawful. And so uh, eventually what happened was the Patriot Act sunsetted and we have the Freedom Act, which is still has a lot of issues, but it didn't have the most egregious of these issues. Interestingly enough, some of the pushback, I must say, came from within the Bush administration from his own lawyers. And originally some of the alarms that were set off about surveillance policy, as well as about torture, I want to add, came from within the Justice Department. And lawyers there who said, no, no, this this is not, we cannot be collecting information this way. This is against the law. If you want it to be done like this, we need to pass new laws. And eventually, there were new laws passed that were broader than what we'd had in the past, but were not as broad as the original Patriot Act.
0: We'll now move on to former President Trump and the subtle tools. He really took them and ran with them. You note that he early on appointed what you describe as war on terrorism warriors, and that required waivers, particularly for his secretaries of defense, because there was a law requiring that former military people have to be retired for 10 years before they can hold these sorts of appointments. So talk about that, please.
1: So this seven-year, I think it's seven-year rule, the way the country and the DOD was constructed, Department of Defense, is that you want to have civilian rule so that there is no sense that the military is making the decisions on its own. It's sort of attempt to restrain any kind of excessive militarism without a strong Civilian component. And so the idea is that the Secretary of Defense would be a civilian. And so the idea was that there had to be a certain amount of time between when you were in the military and when you could be head of the Department of Defense, which all makes sense in that scenario. And what Trump did was ask for a waiver for this and got it. And again, this is an instance of bypassing process and norms, which is one of the tools that I mentioned and abrogating it and saying, no, this is who I want and getting everybody to weigh in on it and, and agree to it. And it doesn't necessarily go against the person who takes the office, it's the process itself. And uh, Biden did the same thing when he appointed Lloyd Austin. And as much as we might wanna say good things about Lloyd Austin, to me, the idea that, okay, well, we broke this once, we're gonna break it again, is a prescription down the road for disaster because it is withering away at a protection that was actually very important and very thought out and very mindful of how important it is to have the military not be deciding things that very much need to have strong, in fact, top civilian input.
0: You just a moment ago talked about some of the helpful things that the Department of Justice did to resist some of the earlier problems that we were having with these laws, but. The Office of Legal Counsel has been used in really disturbing ways, and we won't go to the ones you talk about during the Bush and the Obama administration, not to slight those because they were important, but we're now talking about the Trump administration. And the 1907 anti-nepotism statute... Trump is famous for including his family members in his administration. The Office of Legal Counsel produced a memo that said the president has total discretion in employment in the White House. And this is only one of numerous, in my opinion, problematic Office of Legal Counsel memos. But that's another example. So that's kind of self-evident. We don't need to go into that. But the secrecy that Trump imposed even went farther than earlier administrations. And I, I would like you to talk about that, please.
1: Oh, I'd be happy to. But let me just weigh in on the OLC very quickly, because I'm glad you brought it up. The Office of Legal Counsel within the Department of Justice, which was set up as a kind of brain trust to advise the president and the executive on policies that they might be considering, has gone off the rails starting after 9-11. And although Obama's vowed to enhance transparency. It did not happen. And we still know very little about what went on at the Office of Legal Counsel, particularly during the Trump years, because these things do not have to be made public. The way in which Trump, to get to your actual question, the way in which Trump understood the power of secrecy is worth probably an entire book. One of the things that he seemed to understand very well is that it's one thing to have classified documents. It's one thing to exponentially increase the number of classified documents, as happened under under Bush in the wake of 9-11, often on the grounds of national security. But what Trump understood was that there could also be, if you didn't create the record, if you didn't create the document, you would have even more secrecy. And that actually was a very powerful recognition. And it's not that it hadn't been recognized by prior presidents. But for example, the idea that if you didn't keep records on separating children and their parents at the border, you wouldn't have the record to be contested, was also meant that it would be impossible in some cases to make those reunifications. If, for example, you didn't let traditional note takers take notes at meetings with foreign officials then you wouldn't have those meetings to refer back to. So the idea that if you don't create the record, you have a new level of secrecy was something that was very important and very understood by Trump.
0: In the interest of time, we're going to have to pass over so much information in order to get to the role of William Barr and the bureaucratic porousness, as you put it, that ensued from the Department of Justice. Talk about that a bit. And then I want to get to the more recent activities of 2020 that were so disturbing in terms of federal overreach. But please set the stage with William Barr.
1: Yeah. So William Barr, who comes in in the second part of Trump's presidency as attorney general, is really willing to do almost anything to create the kind of policies that he's in favor of. And so one of the things he does is to erode the boundaries, as I was talking about before, between the White House and the Department of Justice, and between the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security. And in doing that, He amassed so much more power, both for himself and for President Trump, again, erasing a kind of checks and balances. And we see this, as you're pointing to, we see this at the border, where the attorney general, even before Barr, was referred to as the, quote unquote, real, real secretary of Homeland Security. And we see it in the Black Lives Matter movement and the government's determination to quell those using the Department of Justice, as well as the Department of Homeland Security. And interestingly enough, how Barr's tried to back away from Trump since the end of the presidency.
0: Yes, that is interesting. He's not the only one doing so either. I was particularly disturbed by a nineteen-page letter from June of 2018 in which he says the president's power is quote absolute and non-reviewable.
1: Expand on that. I mean, <laughs> so for for a long throughout American history, you might say there's been this note because some people point it to point to the Federalist Papers discussing this. There's been a theory of the unitary executive, which basically holds it really is contrary to a checks and balances understanding of, of government, which holds that the president really is, as Attorney General Barr said, he is the one in charge of the country and definitely in charge of the executive. And that is a thread line, a thought line even, that has been brewing at different times, particularly over the last 50 years, among individuals within government and outside of government. This is really how America, uh, the country, should be run. And it's had iterations of strength before, definitely during Reagan, for example. But this was by far the biggest push point for it was Trump aided by Barr, who had decades of reasoning about this, thinking about it, working with the Federalist Society, which is very much adheres to this notion of the unitary executive.
0: Yes, and one other aspect, you were mentioning the checks and
1: balances, the silencing of the inspectors general. Okay, so so what's interesting here is when you look at all of these subtle tools and how they play out. Not only do they transform what I call the culture of governance, what they're actually doing in all different ways is making accountability impossible. Inspector generals, inspectors general, (laughs) are there to provide accountability. They exist pertinent to different offices, different departments, different organizational aspects of the executive, and their job is to look at fraud and abuse and to name it and to bring their reports to their superiors and then to get it vetted, et cetera, et cetera. They are a check and a balance in the name of accountability, abiding by the law and following the norms that have been put in place and, and accept it. And by firing inspector generals who would begin to look at what was gone awry in the processes of governance in the executive branch, Trump was basically saying, yeah, well, you don't have inspector generals. By the way, this gets back to my secrecy. You don't have reports being written, right? You don't have mechanisms by which to shine a light on that which is being done wrongfully. And so it was one of many ways that accountability was skirted by the Trump administration, please remember that accountability is something that neither Bush nor President Obama had any appetite for, even when it came to torture and to those who created, implemented and justified the policy of torture. So it wasn't new to Trump. It was just that he decided to reorder and rethink without any authorization other than his own will the mechanisms by which accountability, internal accountability would happen. We're,
0: we're passing over very important parts of your book, Karen Greenberg. But in the interest of time, I want to get to the Black Lives Matter protests and the militarizing of the home front. Listeners will remember George Floyd was Murdered by Derek Chauvin on the 25th of May of 1920, which, excuse me, 2020, (laughs) um, which just blew up. One murder too many of an unarmed black man. Uh, So that was May 25th. On June 1st, Trump said that the people who were protesting all across the United States and around the world, I'm quoting him, these are terrorists. I am deploying thousands and thousands of heavily armed soldiers, military personnel, and law enforcement officers. It's a war, and we're going to end it fast. So he starts out really, really militantly on that. He wasn't exactly able to do that right away. But remind listeners of the bureaucratic porousness of the Lafayette Square incident very shortly after June 1st.
1: Yeah, so let me, I'm so glad you're talking about June 1st. To me, this is an overlooked moment in American history that really stands in stark contrast to January 6th, right? Both of them are in Washington, D.C. Both of them involve Donald Trump as president, one of which is a Black Lives Matter protest movement, the other of which are white nationalists trying to make sure the vote is not certified in Congress, right? Right. At one, the June 1st one, agencies from across state lines, from within the federal bureaucracy, from within D.C., converge on protesters. And they do so in a way that is designed to bring trouble. They come armed. They push people. They yell at people. They throw things at people. They try to turn this into a violent conflagration of sorts. Contrast that to January 6th, where no one shows up. Where were those law enforcement agencies? And this is what gets to the idea of not just bureaucratic porousness, but bureaucratic confusion and imprecision. If you break the lines of command, if you override the lines of command, like happened on January 6th, then they don't show up. By contrast, they showed up on June 1st, because President Trump and his allies made sure that they, that they uh, showed up. They wanted some kind of conflict. It's clear. And it's amazing that there wasn't more from that day. And so the question is, if you do have a unitary executive, and you do push aside processes of decision-making, and you do have go-to personnel, many of whom are acting secretaries within different agencies, then you've created not just a unitary executive, but uh, an unconfirmed by the Senate executive, and one in which you can demand loyalty to do your bidding. And so that was a contrast point to January 6th that we should all keep in mind.
0: Much was written about Portland and the ongoing protests in Portland. There was property destruction. But what I found interesting in your book, Karen Greenberg, was the overreach of the federal government there. Would you please share with our listeners some aspects of that? Oh, my goodness.
1: Yes. So Portland became sort of a test case, I believe, for the Trump administration to see how far they could use federal troops within local localities against the Black Lives Matter movement. And they picked Portland as a place where they were going to test this out. Portland is a city prone to protests. <laughs> they have dozens and dozens and dozens of protests on average a year. And their protests against Black Lives Matter referred to things in their own past as well that they were angry about in terms of law enforcement and its treatment of Blacks. And so it was a, a rife moment for the federal government to begin to try to exercise its will. and so. One of the things that Trump did in response to Lafayette Square, actually, was to issue an executive order that said that he could use federal troops and the, 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 he, he could deploy in some very vague ways, actually, antidotes to individuals who were threatening monuments or threatening individuals attached to these monuments and or within the vicinity of these monuments. And so he used that in part in Portland to justify sending federal troops. And where did he send the federal troops from? Of course, from the Department of Homeland Security. They sent border guards to Portland, but they arrived and from and some from the Department of Justice as well, they arrived without any kind of insignia. We, nobody had any idea what agency they were from. They were often in, in cami camouflage. And so they had a military appearance. Their vans and their vehicles were also unmarked. And so imagine this, just arriving on an American city, this kind of invasion, and you don't know where it's come from or who it is or who's taking over your city. And it wasn't just a challenge to the Black Lives Matter protesters. It was also a challenge to the city and state authorities who did not want the federal government invading their space and taking over their locality. And so it's actually interesting to see where the pushback came from in Portland, because on the one hand, you have protesters and local authorities contesting one another. And on the other hand, you have the local authorities and the federal government contesting one another. What happened was that judges and the fight between the local authorities and the federal authorities resulted in the Homeland Security withdrawing its troops ostensibly. However, it didn't really withdraw its agents. It tried, it tried to say, well, we are withdrawing our agents. We're not withdrawing our agents. One of the most important things that happened during this period of time was that former Homeland Security officials and former national security officials began to weigh in and say, this is absolutely inappropriate. This is not how to use the Department of Justice. This is not how to how to use the powers of the executive. And that made some kind of headway, at least in terms of Washington circles, if not more than that. And eventually, a number of judges weighed in, one in particular, saying, look, you can't have it both ways. You can't say you're both here and you're withdrawing your troops. And eventually, it came to a standstill. And Portland still has many protests going on and did for months and months after in very kind of strong ways. But eventually, whatever it was that the federal government was testing out withered withered away.
0: Well, part of it was the extreme use of force against members of the press and observers, legitimate observers of these. But I do have a question for you. On July 1st of 2020, Trump created a new Department of Homeland Security Division, the Protect American Communities Task Force Pact, and they deputized Customs and Border Patrol agents to help in the cities. Agents from the Department of Justice, the Department of Interior, and DHS were conducting surveillance, etc. Does that task force still exist, do you know? You know, I don't know.
1: It's a really good question. I have no idea. This is something that I'll figure out by the end of today.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, we'll follow up on that. Um, uh, We're just about out of time, Karen Greenberg. Take like three minutes for final words, whatever we didn't get to that you really want our listeners to know about. And they're just going to have to read the book themselves.
1: I think we're at a pivotal moment, and I think this book speaks to it. I think that whatever kind of legislation we're looking at going forward, whether it's in the name of national security or immigration or whatever it is, we have to be really careful that it's specific, that it has limits to what law enforcement and the government government authorities can and can't do. We need to move into that arena. I think we need to move into arena in which process is valued and not abrogated in the name of emergency. And I think we have to have very specific notions of what constitutes an emergency because there are going to be cases where we will need to have emergency powers. And so that's also very important. I think that the challenges that face us are global and that it's really important for this country to get its act together so that it can behave in a responsible way in the global community. And I think this book very much has that in mind throughout. I think that President Biden understands the subtle tools very well, instinctively. He's always trying to be clear, be precise, to get at the people who work for him to show that they will f- distribute report after report after report, whether it's from the intelligence community or the law enforcement community. What this all amounts to, we'll see. I do think that there is a sense of urgency right now to correcting what's been done before. And I guess my final thought is we need to stop being a country that is is, uh, afraid of accountability. And we're now in the middle of an investigation about January 6th in which there is a sense that the people who authorized it and led it could have impunity and that we just can't continue like that as a country. We need to address this and we need to address it now.
0: One final question. Inevitably, whatever comes out of the January 6th Investigations Committee will end up in front of the Supreme Court. And I wonder, I don't want to use the word hope, but I'm not sure of what other word to use. Given the history that you have explored, what trust can the American people place in the Supreme Court
1: at this time? That's the $24 million question. We want to trust them. I think Roberts has sent the signal that he would like to see somebody who can adjudicate by the law and not bipartisan issues and the politics, but it's not just up to him. And I think we're in a very, very fragile time. And I would not make any, any bets on this. I just think it's important to bring the issues to light to as broad an audience as possible.
0: Karen Greenberg, thank you so much for your work and for sharing it with us today on Forthright Radio. Your book, Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump is very helpful in understanding where we find ourselves as a democracy today.
1: Thank you so much for having me and for caring so much about these issues and today's problems. You have just heard an interview with Karen
0: Greenberg, director of the Center on National Security at Fordham University. Her latest book, Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump, is published by Princeton University Press. The views and opinions expressed on forthright radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production, hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. And you can also find links to articles referenced or pertinent to the interviews there at forthright.media.